Welcome to the RCAP USA Roundup, a podcast where we have real conversations affecting both cattle producers and beef consumers. We're your hosts, Jaden Moreland and Karina Jones. With that, let's get to today's episode. 2023 sponsorships and trade show vendor spots are now available. Join us August 17th and 18th in Rapid City, South Dakota for the 24th annual RCAP USA convention. Visit rcapconvention.com for more information. Gene editing, broken cattle markets, RFID tags, we cover them all with Steve Stratford and Chris Earle as this episode focuses on giving a voice to independent seed stock producers, the dangers of so-called vertical cooperation, and the realities of replacing the value of reputations in the U.S. cattle industry. Okay. Well, Stephen, Chris, welcome to the RCAF USA Roundup. We appreciate y'all taking the time to talk with us today. Um, so kind of the goal with creating this podcast was to give a voice to independent seed stock producers and just kind of talk about a recent issue that our industry is facing. But before we get started on that, let's get a quick introduction from each of you, kind of just tell us about yourself, your your history in the cattle industry, how you're involved with the Angus breed. Um, Steve, let's start with you. I guess history in the cattle business. I've worked at a livestock market since I was a teenager. Um, helped manage, I guess, one of the biggest markets in Kansas and, and collectively, sure, the biggest uh, group of sale barns in the country. Um, sold Angus bulls for 20 years now, probably something like that. Um, I actually, when I got into the Angus business, Chris was, um, uh, my source and advisor and, and, uh, we've been good friends since, um, run commercial cattle. I get to see, uh, cattle from every region of the United States. I live in Kansas and, and the, our trade area is the region that about every region ships to for, for wheat pasture. So, um, the quality here is every end of the spectrum and, and cattle from every management scheme and and every geographic location. So just get a pretty uh, wide array of, uh, I guess, everybody in the business. Very cool. What about you, Chris? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. My name's Chris Earl. My wife and I, uh, we have six kids. We've got a, a ranch in Maxwell, New Mexico. Uh, been there into our eighth or ninth year now. Uh, I've actually been in the Angus business since 1989, uh, where I started as a herdsman for Sunny Valley Farm. And uh, from there, I became uh, vice president, uh, stayed at Sunny Valley Farm there in Illinois. We had grew to three three ranches, uh, stayed there till 2009, where I started a uh, consulting company, which I currently have today. Uh, we consult, uh, genetically consult, marketing, every pro program is a little different, but we have upwards of 30 um, clients that we consult for, uh, help have sales for, marketing. Um, and, uh, you know, we're probably in that, we probably do 60, 70 sales a year, uh, purebred Angus sales. Uh, you know, our sales uh, last year did upwards of $40 million. Uh, I do about 100,000 miles a year on the road. I, I have clients in every region. Um you know, I've done everything probably in the business. Uh, you know, I've, I've fed cattle for 18 years. Steve and I feed cattle off and on together. Uh, had a meat company in Illinois. Um, now we've got the ranch, really tough part of the, really tough part of the country. Uh, but, you know, frankly, really enjoy 
competitive guy. Really enjoy the uh, the chase for genetics, and uh, most of all, I I, I want to be a small part in uh, producers' lives that have chosen this way of life, and and uh, hopefully be able to be an asset to help them to help them see what is a ever changing business. So. So y'all have shared a passion for a recent issue facing the American Angus Association, just to kind of lay the foundation for this conversation with our listeners on February 24th, 2023, the American Angus Association reported in its online board minutes that the board heard from a breeder who shared information on gene editing and submitted an inter an intentional gene alteration application for approval of the slick gene. Per previously established policy, the topic will be taken up by the Breed Improvement Committee with a report back at the June board meeting. Like all topics, I encourage members to share their thoughts and opinions with us, but especially on new and emerging technologies like this one. While the board will continue to modify policies as the technology evolves, we did establish a $500 fee for an IGA founder animal. And so that's direct quote from their board minutes. Um, so can y'all kind of just give us an overview of this gene editing? I mean, it sounds like this huge, just, I don't know, kind of goes over my head. So for our listeners that aren't familiar with this, what is this gene editing they're talking about? And like, how does it work with our industry? Well, it's an interesting, it's an ever evolving science, like most science. And it's really a science that I think has been, um, probably coming on for the last five to 10 years. And, you know, as I've tried to update my knowledge of it, it seems like there can be, um, you know, an insertion of a gene into the genome or they can actually tweak one, turn it off, turn it, you know, do those kind of things that would, that would inhibit uh, the expression of certain traits. And uh, so, you know, they've, uh, they've had a breeder come and, you know, on theory, you know, in theory, a lot of these things sound great. Uh, if you're, um, if you own the science, <laughs> I'd say if you don't own the science, a lot of these mm -hmm. things can be very challenging for the producer. And so when this came, uh, when this was proposed, they had that breeder come forward and basically ask if he had an animal, uh, um, that, that was from, you know, a, uh, uh, a manipulated, um, genome, would he be able to register it? And, uh, you know, it really sparked my ears sparked my thought on something that could really be a slippery slope for a breed registry. And um, obviously, Steve and I, uh, uh, pretty quick, uh, hopefully we rallied a lot of people. And, you know, as we speak here today, uh, they, 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 they finished up their side of the table. So, which uh, which means they will not make an action on it. Um, they heard a little bit of a podcast and, and I do believe that they are, that they are actually shoring up some of their rules too for the future as this thing continues to probably come at uh, the marketplace. So. Okay. You were breaking up for a minute there, Chris. So did I hear you say that they have tabled the action and have not made any decisions? They have tabled the action to decide on it. Uh, so I think it said there was no action is how they listed it in the, um, in their press release. So it will, uh, it will go on to future board meetings and, and my guess is future discussion. Well, let's try and crawl inside, I guess, the strategy behind produ a producer coming forward, you know, to the Angus Association or whatever breed association. 
or going down this avenue of gene editing, what what are the benefits of it, do you think? Steve, you want me to go or? Well, I mean, like in, in this scenario for this edit, and I guess my my negativity towards it in general is, is where do you stop? Like Chris said, there's things that, that can be presented or be discussed that, um, you know, all of us would like certain things in cattle to be able to be cured with a gene edit. Um, you know, whatever that is, BRSV, pink eye, foot rot, you know, pap, elevation, um, so on and so forth. But, um, you know, when you go to doing that, and if you're using using cattle that aren't Angus um, in order to do that, I mean, it's just a complete Pandora's box of where does it ever end? You know, does the breed stay pure? Um, do we take genes from Bos Indigus cattle that, um, you know, were bred for for being slick and, and tolerating heat, and we put that into Angus? Um, and at what point do you take away what breeders have done for three or four generations in improving their cattle for their environment and somebody in a different geographic environment can gene edit theirs. So all of a sudden they're marketable in that breeder's environment that's worked forever doing that. Um, same thing on a commercial level is, so you gene edit to get rid of BRSV or pink eye or foot rot. Um, what does that do to the guy that is a better manager and has done a better job um, and he's on top of that versus the guys that uh, that don't do it as well and those diseases or those problems um, cause him a lot more financial loss? Well, he has a lot less invested in it too if he's not not doing the work of the top tier tier uh, producer. So um, I just have a real problem with, uh, the fact that these things are good for the whole and how many of the thousands of American Angus or commercial cattlemen will benefit from this. What will benefit from this is some corporation. And in my opinion, our direct competition with this slick edit gene, these cattle would be aimed, um, you know, Florida and South Texas and whatever are big areas. Um, but that's not what's in their crosshairs. It's closer to the equator, the South American market, the uh, African market. And then that just directly cuts the throat of the American producer. Um, so I'm going to be against any of that until uh, until our legislators and our representation of associations here do something to safeguard the American producer. It's really a great point that Steve makes, especially to the last half. And and I think when you ask for a benefit, you know, it's really how do you quantify a benefit? And, you know, especially through, you know, what was COVID and what's been really uh, the breaking of the thousand head feeder, you know, I would feel a lot better about this, that someone was looking after my welfare. If I had something I could point to over the last 10 years where a corporation and association was actively pursuing the benefit of the people. Uh, I see a lot of people looking to benefit the animal, looking to benefit uh, the vertical the vertical food chain, looking to benefit uh, large corporations. I very rarely come across people that are willing to take a hard stance for the producer. 
And at the end of the day, I think we have to start realizing that um, as an advocate, uh, as you look across the thing for an advocate, the person you're writing a check to might not be the person you look to for an answer. And um, for some reason in, 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 in agriculture, you know, we have been um, a little uh, uh, trained that way over the years. If it comes through a land grant university, if it comes through whatever, these are not people that do what we do. And if they had a track record and if there was a track record I could point to of results, that was a benefit to the diversity and the population of what we do, then I would say there is a benefit. But for me, this is just a level of the playing field that looks to actively feed a food chain to where people from the top up can acquire more space in the food chain and fulfill what is power and greed. That's as simple as I can put it. I want to I want to reaffirm something that Steve kind of said and I don't know, I guess ask it in a different context. So in terms of this gene editing issue within the American Angus Association, let's make it even clear who does who gets the strategic advantage of this decision or of this uh this strategy. I think Karina, that I think it's there's a short term advantage, no doubt. I think there is a short term advantage to people that can access this. But as we have seen, a short term advantage is not the goal for why these things are introduced. And I think Steve has laid out in his commentary a great perspective of the long term goal. And the long term goal is to eliminate individual thought and competition. That's what they look to. And um, and I so I think from you know, all of us that have been trained at an early age to look at the short term benefit, if it was a vaccine, if it was some sort of a food program, if it was, a you know, mineral tied to a vaccine, none of these things last. None of these last because they all look to acquire and gain uh, with little thought about the producer surviving this. And, um, you know, uh, Steve has said many a time, support the people that support you. It is uh, I think it's one of the great quotes in rural America. Uh, but as you look around, it's very tough to find those people that support you. So, so I'm a cattle producer north of I-80 in Nebraska. The idea of a slick gene really was not ever anything I was looking for needing, I guess, for our operation. So Steve, once again, tell us, I mean, who you see this targeting and serving. Well, and I haven't, I, this is presumption. I, I mean, I obviously haven't sat in on the board meetings or anything else, but I presume the member that went and, and the board's discussion has been for the the hotter, more tropical markets in the United States um, in order to get it to pass the sniff test. Um, I'm not saying that's a small market, but that's a small market compared to the world market of that climate. Um you know, and case in point, um, we have a reduced herd here right now because of drought and economics, not just drought. We were going to have a reduced herd anyway. Um, and South America's uh, year over year imports in May to us uh, rose 10 percent. Um, you know, somebody here is is uh, is helping them with the math um, to pick up the production that. Uh, that we're going to reduce. And with all the 
the drought and the economic factors and the cost of doing business here and the regulation, we're going to have a smaller herd going forward. We may rebuild from these numbers short term, but I think I think uh, we're real short sighted if you don't think of lots of grounds leaving animal production, um, going to hunters as it trades, uh, baby boomers that are uh, aging out. Um, those kids are not um, in production agriculture and not bringing cows back to those acres. So South America, Africa is the big market uh, going forward for the major packing companies to import the beef from. And guess where the slick gene will work the best? Um, on those Nalor cows in South America that they can't use Angus right now that are, you know, X amount from the equator. So my guess is it's for the emerging South America and, and Africa market. As this conversation has developed and we've taken it, you know, into a global view, I've got a really genuine question that I don't know the answer to. So that is why I'm asking it. Does the American Angus Association have a multinational membership or are they only to serve and, well, I guess serve United States of America producers? Yeah, so they, I mean, they serve, uh, they serve the American producer, no question about it, built a tremendous brand that, you know, basically carries with it the largest set of data in the world as it relates to performance. It is an unbelievable set. It's an asset for anyone that has the ability to access it. And there's multinational companies that access that data. And like it or not, in 2023, you know, I would like to see more of it verified, but to, but to be frank, uh, the world believes it and the world trades on it and these animals are bought and sold on it. And it's a, uh, it's a set of data that has universal pull, has universal pull on, especially coming out of America, is that it's because it is a, the testing ground of all testing grounds. So if animals come out of here that carry, you know, the brand of the American Angus Association and a number set or an EPD set or a, or a prefix uh, that is uh, well-established, then it has tremendous genetic marketplace pull. And so um, that is hopefully one of the premises here is that I'm looking to protect is, you know, that set of data was accumulated by strife, financial risk, and effort. It wasn't accumulated by a doctor changing a genome in a dish. And um, the people that have established and the people that are part of this business are the part that's important to me. And, uh, and that entrepreneurship that has elevated uh, genetics in the Angus breed to what it is today. So, you know, um, I'm looking to preserve that. I'm looking to preserve and, 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 uh, and uh, the effort that goes behind that reward it in a competitive marketplace rather than just make it easy and level the playing field. And here's a quick, here's a quick, another answer to your question. I had a, I talked to a board member about heart health because I live at 6,200 feet. And, and one of the things that was coming down the pike as they were looking at all this was probably, you know, something that would help with PAP with, uh, you know, with uh, uh, what we struggle with. You know, I bought a ranch at 6,200 feet in nowhere, New Mexico, in order to establish a program that had some market le leverage on a on a product, you know, that could uh, that could perform at high altitude. 
I, I could see where someone said, Chris, why wouldn't you want to look at this and at least get it cured? I said, because then a guy in Mississippi could sell a guy at altitude uh, bulls. You know, so the long-term benefit, it's not there. It just becomes a leveled playing field that can simply be acquired, that can simply be acquired. So, um, you know, the board member agreed with me and, uh, and uh, you know, I hope a lot of those discussions that took place as this thing went forward, especially from a lot of the m members, really got them thinking about the marketplace and not just the animal. Do you think that there has been enough research done on this issue about the the negative consequences of what could happen from, you know, as you guys stated earlier, opening Pandora's box, and then how do you stuff the genie back in the bottle once you've went too far? I don't think it's even close, to be honest with you. I've got great friends in the medical field, some of them clients, I know that wrote letters, that this was their number one issue, is, you know, these things have repercussions. Look, if you ranch, and we all do, you see where you're never 100% sure why and how things happen. You're just not. You think you might know, you think you might this, but really, you know, how do influences of environment, management, genetics, all stirred up into a vat, how do you really control that? And I, I just don't think you do. I just don't think you do. I think the body and the, you know, the animal has a way to adapt animal to animal. And, um, and I've seen it my whole career. So, yeah, I don't think they're close to their credit. Uh, Dr. Pollard was on uh, the podcast I listened to from Oklahoma. Um, he said that, you know, he basically, I don't want to, I don't know, I can't remember his word for word, but he summarized that they have a lot more to learn about this. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and I trust him on that because I think they do. Yeah, and I don't think you're ever going to learn all of that. I mean, <clears throat> so you edit the slick hair gene. What other genes in, in the animal that are creator develop that animal to function? What other genes are different in that animal that you just change the slick hair gene on and, and now his body temperature, his heart rate, things like that change in a different environment? Um you know, I I think it'd be a terrible mistake to jump in. And I they put that in their letter that they don't know enough about it. Um, but before I forget it, we need to thank all the the breeders and the uh people that uh were active in writing letters and voicing their opinion because correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but six months ago in the various board members I talked to or the word on the street, this thing was gonna pass. And in the last four or five months, there's been a lot of people uh, uh, speak up and speak out against it. And all those board members that were wooed by somebody they deemed more intelligent than them or somebody could talk with a bigger vocabulary, they were just going to vote. Yeah, because they hadn't heard from the people against it. Um, and that's just a testament that that you've got to speak up and speak out because I think they got overwhelmed with people against it. And that's what got it tabled. Agree 100%, Steve. I had the same uh, talks with uh, some board members and actually had a board member told me if it was presented in February, it, pro it, pro it probably would have passed. So, so let's kudos. talk about, quickly talk about an association where it has passed. And that would be the Red Angus Association was, according to their website, the first breed association to allow gene edited animals into their registry. Has, you know, has anybody heard of any um, 
feedback consequences of that decision or how that is affecting the Red Angus registry? I, I have minimal uh, exposure to members in the Red Angus, but I, you know, I, I think there's, I think there's some things you can look to and that is, you know, black Angus right now are experiencing a tremendous market share that continues to grow. And I think, you know, as these other breed associations uh, look to compete and stay relevant, look, they're going to try and find these things that people think that people need to lead on. And, and, and I think, you know, to be frank, and I'll just make a kind of an association commentary here overall generally is, and I think it's really an expression of, I think the inverted relationships that between associations and members. And I think that, you know, in my world, an association is there to serve. It is not there to lead. And uh, I, I, I spend most of my time with members that are tremendous assets, not only to themselves, but are experts in what they do and um, need to be accessed uh, from, you know, from certain parts of the marketplace. So, you know, I think we're moving and there's some other topics with the American Angus Association that 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 I am on the opposite side of the sign of the times right now, to be honest with you, um, is just. You know, I think these breed associations think they are a for-profit entity that needs to lead hardworking people into areas of the marketplace that they don't need to lead them. And I would say this is one of them, you know, and uh, people just like Steve was mentioning, we, you know, members that have an independent thought and an independent spirit uh, need to start speaking up. They need to become more active as it relates to the direction of their association, or they will go down a corporate, um, vertically integrated system that is really driven from corporations to land grant universities to associations. And it's been there for 30 years and or more. And it is to the debt, it is from what I can tell, as I look across rural America, it is to the detriment of rural America. So, um, you know, I don't know where they're going to end up with it, but my goodness, what a tough road for a breed to go. What a, what a tough road for a breed to go down. So. And I think if you, and, and Chris alluded to it, um, but honestly, and, and this is not from an, uh, an Angus breeder. Um, I see good cattle of every breed every week. Um, the best of every breed are, are getting better and, and phenomenal cattle. Um, so, um, is Angus a priority of mine? Yes. Um, am I blinded by Angus and Angus only? No. So I guess my point is what would Red Angus have to lose? They are, have barely been able to stay in business. They just, they don't have anything to lose. Why not try it? And also, the owners of the gene-edited Red Angus are a corporate genetic company. You know, it's not Joe Blow Red Angus breeder in Nebraska wanting this. Um, you know, it's a it's a genetic corporation that uh, I guess would have uh, ulterior motives in my mind. And if you look at American Angus, our staff 
there and the people that actually do the work is second to none, amazing to work with, absolutely awesome. I mean, I raise register Red Angus too. And if you compare working with one association or the other with the actual workers, not the high salaried CEOs and talking heads, it you know, it's an amazing difference. American Angus has it figured out. They got great caring people in that office. It is unreal. But if you look at the financials of even that, what they do as a breed registry is not that profitable. What profits at American Angus is the stip in they got on every pound of beef Mark CAB. And so that's the lottery. That's the big revenue source. And guess what? Just like with beef on dairy, what if you could mark those carcasses on those Nalor cows in South America and Africa, CAB. And then they come in here and they're not South American CAB. They're not Brazil CAB under today's labeling standards, this, that, and the other. It's a whole new revenue source for American Angus at the demise of the American producer. And that's my big fault with the entire topic. Um, I would be a lot more open-minded to it when our labeling laws differentiate the American product. Um, you're talking, I'm also talking about brand, uh, a branded beef program that is wanting to sign on to carbon and sustainability and stuff like that because they think they need to do that to be relevant at the meat counter going forward to our consumer. But they haven't once spoke up that we need to label it product of the USA, you know, American, anything like that. So they're putting their greed for dollars per pound above Americanism in my in my view. And that is what really ruffles my feathers. I'm really glad that you took the conversation in that direction, Steve, because that leads me to, you know, I think that we all admit CAB has um, done a wonderful job of marketing. We give them all the credit for the market share that they have captured. Um, what does the risk of starting to gene edit Angus animals do to consumer confidence of CAB beef? I'm a housewife who, you know, is up and down every aisle of the grocery store. There is non-GMO labels on things that you know, would just, you know, puzzle me as somebody in agriculture, like, why did they even label that non-GMO? It could never have GMO. And I think most consumers would think that meat would never go down this avenue of becoming um, genetically altered. But now here we are. What do you think this does when the consumer starts realizing that their beef could be genetically altered? It's already happening. I've I've had multiple calls uh, since and correspondence. I've got a lot of clients that have started small meat companies, right? That you know they're face to face with their with their with their consumer. I mean, leaning over a leaning over a, a counter somewhere, you know, or in their garage, and and they've had these questions because they have seen these come across the news wires. They have seen GMO. I mean, a lot of it, you know, a lot of people won't dive into it. They'll just hear. You know what? Just think if they just think if, if they would have heard that the American Angus Association has signed on to registering a genetically, you know, altered animal. Just think how we would have to separate ourselves from that in the marketplace. And if it's at a five percent level, ten percent level, twenty five percent level, I can tell you right now, those levels are too high for where these margins are. 
they're just too high. I mean, the pressures under the American consumer uh, are, are wide enough the God-created pressures. Nonetheless, where your own association walks you into a, uh, a marketplace that you can't differentiate yourself from. You know, I think they at times they argue from both sides of the of the they argue from both sides of the ledger here. One moment they said the consumer wants it and then like you just said why would they bring this because I've seen the same I've seen the same same things. The consumer doesn't want this. Matter of fact, they're moving the opposite direction. I know good farm, ranch, housewives. Steve's got a great point on implants. They're starting to move away from implants. You know, they're starting to move towards how was this animal raised, finished, fed, all these things. And and yeah, it it is puzzling. I do think at times there's not a science they won't look at. There's not a science they won't look at. I've often told Steve, you know, and I know there's been some great things done at the American Ang Association and other breeds as it relates to making decisions. But the pioneer spirit inside a non-for-profit boardroom, a lot of times I struggle with because there's no financial recourse in a non-for-profit board board boardroom it's only the people that are out making the prop profits and to be led by and to be led into those things i'm going to fight them i'm going to fight them on those kind of things because i think it's very detrimental to the hardworking people that produce the product excellent um anything else you guys want to add to the gene editing conversation i i just want to add just one thing i I very much am grateful for what the board has done here and what the people that motivated themselves to really reach out and pass what they would normally. Most of these, most rural people just want to be left alone. And, but a lot of people rallied and made their voice heard on this. And I think it did mean a lot. However, this is a technology that is, is, is coming. And my only premise on this was I, I really, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a capitalist. If somebody wants to bring this and, 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 and face all their own challenges and face all their, uh, all the financial risk, I, I, I really have no problem with that as long as the, as long as the playing field is level. Uh, but to use where, where, where I struggle is, is they all want to come in through these land grant universities and use the associations and use the hardworking people that have paying the membership as the testing ground. And to be frank, I'm getting tired of it being used as a testing ground. And uh, we need to get back to servicing good people that are fighting tough mar mar margins, but have one heck of a market coming. And we need to learn how to serve the people, not the food chain, serve the people. And hopefully through this, uh, we will find that niche to serve people, you know, to serve the, the good people that pay the membership. So. Do you guys think that this gene editing conversation is one that RCAF members need to bring forward at our annual business meeting to discuss policy measures on? I think it's right down to your guys' alley. I'll be honest with you. It's, it's simply, if you look at it from a 20,000 foot view, it's the elimination of competition. It is the adding to the vertical integration of a product in order that top down, it works for them. It works for them. And um, everything top down right now has, and, and Steve has firsthand knowledge, has gotten top down because of special deals. And that, you know, and there's only still one person paying all the bills. And that's the producer. And um, this looks to eliminate and to uh, uh, competition, which is not good for the, which is not good for the producer ever. So, 
I think it's right down your guys' alley, to be honest, from it'd a deeper be, It'd be a really good uh, rebuttal to, to uh, USDA and Packers' as, uh, uh, point of being against, you know, M-Cool or labeling a beef because that is, you know, too much work and, and too costly to the food chain. Um, are you telling me USDA and American Angus and everybody that, that would be on board if these edits went through um, knows the ramifications of, of labeling the GMO or non-GMOs apart and tracking that. Um, you know, I don't want to be a conspiracy theory here, but if they let that genie out of the bottle, then that probably bodes right into their tagging everything in America so we can keep that separate. Um, when we're doing nothing about keeping the import separate in the meat case right now. Good points. Excellent points. Chris, I'm going to piggyback off where you just left off. So earlier this year at the American Angus Convention, there was a panel of Angus breeders that had a discussion that caught a lot of attention. Let's revisit, you know, what they were talking about on that stage. Do you think vertical coordination or cooperation as they stated it is any different than vertical integration in the end it just kind of seems like a small pool will call the shots and either you're going to comply or you're going to get out yeah it's uh i look it's wordsmithing right to me i mean this stuff is historical i mean it we don't have to look anywhere else to it but to our neighbors but to other species you know you can label this anyway no one goes to nike Katrina, and ask them how many shoes they got on their warehouse when they're selling them for 160. But for some reason, we're all supposed to, you know, tell the people when we're going to sell them, tell them how much they're going to weigh, you know, all these things. And, and, you know, until the good people in rural America realize that they hold the keys to whatever this economy is, and we don't need to motivate at 100% level, I mean, we can we can get 25 percent, you know, we can get 10 percent to affect the market, you know, uh, then we have to quit giving our secrets away. We are absolutely giving our leverage away to people. Look, I mean, look at what has happened. We, we soon when we hit these. Here's what happens in rural. We hit these good markets and we forget what they've done to us over the last five. They have absolutely the marketplace pillaged us. I have watched so many good friends, so many good clients, so many other people, not through fault of their own, go find something else to do because the system broke them, flat broke them. And I, I, I'm, I'm not going to forget that. I'm a competitive person at heart and I want to use leverage. There's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with being an independent mind and being separate from the food chain and still adding to the food chain. And um, we just need a little help. We just need a little advocacy uh, from people that see the benefit of what we do. And I, you know, I'm from the old school of raising something that people just have to have, just have to have. And it looks to me like beef is moving into that, in, into that spectrum where people have to have it. And uh, so I'm not, I'm not inclined to give anybody my secrets or my values or my inventory, you know, and, um, and until I see, you know, and until I, I always tell people this, I put it simply until somebody like a, 
like a packer until a packer wakes up and bids cattle off his own books and doesn't bid it off with J, J, JBS is, is bidding, then I'll, then I'll, then I'll go ahead and believe them. Then I'll go ahead and believe them. But until they, until they start bidding off their own books, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to stay pretty private. Steve, what are your thoughts on vertical cooperation? <clears throat> well, I guess that's just way to sugarcoat what we've done the last 20 years. I mean, I guess if vertical cooperation is a thing, you know, we're 85% there would be my guess. Um, yeah. The, uh, so I don't know where you split those hairs. Um, you know, it just, it just shows, honestly, the last three, four months, we're not that low on fed cattle. What has helped us more than anything is the fact feeders, we changed the cycle of how cattle come because of the drought and the calves spread out this fall a lot more than a lot of them came early and uh, where they could, they came late because the deferred futures were, were sitting there a lot higher. Um, the drought without wheat pasture made the kettle not come in February through April like they normally do. They spread out. They came early. They came various weights. And the board lagged behind out there, and the kettle feeders were giving too much for the calves and the feeders to forward contract them. So the formulation kettle number stayed about the same because those people are vertically integrated or coordinated or whatever you want to sucking off their ass. But what changed was the forward contracted kettle. Um, and that, that's not a very big number. And the leverage swings to us. Um, like I say, we're not that short on kettle right now. If you think we're short on kettle on now, wait till December and January. That's when the numbers are going to show up. So it doesn't take that many numbers to move. Uh, box beef still not where it was during COVID. And we're getting more than twice for fat kettle. So if that's not a proof of a manipulated market um, to any legislator or anybody that wants to look at it, I don't know what is. Um, you know, so we're in a good good seat for a while, um, but I'm afraid we're in a seat that that uh, the inputs and the cost of doing business and the interest rate is going to uh, help increase the vertical coordination um, because there's just too much risk, too much money. People that have went through three or four bad years now, you're going to have to double your your uh, what you borrow and you're doubling the interest rate that you're borrowing it at in order to try to recoup what you've lost the last three or four years. Um, that's just going to be a, a business model that there's way too risk for what little reward there is. There's no doubt that there's a lot of potholes on the past balance sheets that have got to get patched up. And I'm not sure we're going to see that under these input conditions. Yeah. Very, I mean, you know, just like yesterday, I mean, we had steers over $2,100. Um, you know, corn's backed off a little bit, but still, it's still going to be five fifty six hundred to feed them. So you're talking about a $2,700, $2,800 break even without 9% interest, which would add about another hundred ahead. So you're approaching three grand break even. I fed a lot of cattle that cost between 500 and a thousand ahead that lost two to 300. What could these cattle lose? Um, 
you know, with the black swan events that can happen. And I mean, always the big losses in the kettle business really have nothing to do with the kettle business. You know, it's the stock market. It's a war. Um, plant fire, mad cow, just go down the list. Um, so these would be, even though it looks like we're in good times and the kettle are bringing a lot of money, these are the times that, uh, that, uh, in that help vertical integration and vertical coordination get bigger. That's true. I want to go back to something Chris had said about, you know, keeping his information close um, and, you know, valuing it. So does it concern you guys that the USDA has placed a heightened priority on placing more restrictions on our own producers by wanting to mandate RFID tags over implementing stronger biosecurity measures on imports? Um, as seed stock producers yourself, are you concerned that the USDA could come after your data? I think you're always concerned. I mean, I'm an old time conservative. I mean, I'm I, I always anytime the government infusion into my life is grows larger, I become, you know, more of a rebel, to be frank. I, I mean, it is, you know, it's control and uh, it's not constitutional. It's not something the government was set up to do. They use fear mongering. They use a lot of these things in order to gain access uh, to your private business. And my private business uh, is raising, uh, turning grass into beef, using a competitive genetic uh, uh, knowledge in order to increase that. And that's really as simple as it gets. I don't know why um, all of a sudden, well, I know why, but all of a sudden there is great emphasis brought on by people that we should be, have great confidence in that know our way of life, but government finds great advocates in our own systems in order to carry this pressure on us. And that's, you know, Steve used the word before, uh, that's where he gets a little ouchy, I think. I get real ouchy. You know, these, what, what, you know, these, these, these advocates that we're supposed to have in our business that carry the water for these kind of things, um, that's only gotta happen to me once and I'll know where they stand. And, and I think any of those things that are private knowledge uh, that, are, uh, you know, if, 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 if I'm breaking the rules, if I'm breaking the laws, fine, come get me, you know, whatever you got to do, but to bring those on yourself, man, makes no business sense. I cannot find a business model that makes sense to me on that. The only thing it really does is it really allows the unleveling of the playing field and allows corporate money Call it an oligarch. I mean, these basically these entities, these big box things that have great uh, rewards from the government to come in and access the and access certain areas of the economy. And I don't think that's any different here. I, I, I think it's we're the last great bastion of uh, conservatism and independent thought. That's ranching. I, I can't say that about far farming anymore, but you can still say it about ranching. And I'd like to hold it. I, I'd, I'd like to hold it that way. And I think we can. And I think because we own the cattle and own, own the land. And at the end of the day, there's too, too many of us that control too much power. We just we need to find a way to to uh, bring that independent thought together and hold our ground because we have a great product that's needed. And uh, but at the end of the day, we have a obligation to ourselves. We don't have an obligation to the food chain. We don't have an obligation to the government. We don't have an obligation to anybody but ourselves and our families and to run a good, viable business. 
And to do that looks to me like you need competition. So, um, you know, I, uh, yeah, those things are, those things are a growing concern. And as they use environmentalism against us too, I mean, they, you know, they found a, they've, they've, they found an olive branch here and the olive branch is, you know, if they wave it across urban America to think that we're ruining the land because of our cattle and the way we run them and coast like, and stuff like that, they will find, they will find empowerment, um, to, uh, bring some sort of rules or, or structure against us. So, and as we see it more and more, I mean, we see it more and more every day. And it's through the sustainability movement that Steve had mentioned, you know, earlier, that has nothing to do with the earth, nothing to do with credibility, nothing to do with any truth. It has everything to do with knowledge of your product and power. So. Exactly. Well, on that note, kind of as we end our conversation, do y'all have anything else that we didn't cover that y'all want to add before we sign off? Nope. You just, uh, I'll just say a quick, uh, quick thing about my friend. One of the great uh, advocates for people has more knowledge than anybody I know in the business. Steve does. He's where the rubber meets the road. He will absolutely take a loss for somebody else's gain. And uh, you know, I think as the country looks for somebody that you can trust uh, even when the time gets tough, Steve Strat, Strat Stratford is my good friend and, and, and he will go against the war. So he's one of the best. Well, thank you, Chris, and right back at you. Uh, but that's just that's the whole thing, and and our calf and Karina and the group there. I mean, we've got to keep having the people that got everybody's uh, benefit in mind. Um, and that's that's what we've lost. We have it in communities, neighbors, friends, so on and so forth, but we don't have it on the the national scale and the industry scale. And if we could get to there, we'd be a lot better off you know, these decisions, if it helps everybody, so be it. If it helps a few and helps the corporations and helps the the system be against it, we'd all be in a better place. Well, the question we always like to end with that is usually the fan favorite is what is your favorite cut of beef and how do you like it prepared? Go ahead, Steve. I want to hear yours first. Mine's a KC strip medium and uh, every day. <laughs> love love the answer i'm a ribeye medium rare uh, we do a seasoning on our ranch so i love putting it on there and i can eat it three three meals a day without question great answers love it okay anything else before i stop recording really appreciate the work you girls do thanks for all and thanks for having us on quite an honor thank you yes thank you very much Thank you so much, Steve and Chris, for joining us. And thank you for tuning in today. Be sure to follow along at USA on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. USA is set apart from all other National Cattle Associations because we rely solely on membership dues and donations to carry out our mission to ensure the continued profitability and independence of United States cattle producers. We exist only because of the support from our members. We ask you to help support USA. First year new memberships are $50, and after that, all renewals are $100 each year. To become a member or to donate, call 406-252-2516 or go to r-calfusa.com.